instead of growing, whether it's animals to produce certain proteins or creating products that resemble their analogs through plant-based, now you actually have the ability to instruct microorganisms to produce the compounds that you want to create products that are bioidentical to their traditionally farmed animal products. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 57 of the Business for Good podcast, and what an interesting story it is. I always love stories about people's lives taking major and totally unpredicted turns. It's a good reminder that no matter how in control we think we are, fate typically has different plans for us than we've charted for ourselves. Or to quote the old adage, humans plan and God laughs. Irina Jerry fits that bill. She has led a pretty remarkable life, starting out being raised in communist Russia, but with fate helping to defy the odds, leading Irina to come to the United States and attend Harvard Business School, eventually bringing her to work at some of the biggest symbols of capitalism on the planet, like Procter & Gamble. But soon, Irina was in the dairy industry, working at Milk Behemoth, Danone, or sometimes known as Danon in the United States, managing their plant-based brands Silk and So Delicious. But after years spending time advancing alt-dairy within the walls of one of the biggest dairy companies on earth, fate struck again in Irina's life. And after a chance virtual meeting on LinkedIn during the pandemic with the CEO of a brand new pre-revenue animal-free dairy startup, Irina decided to leave the comfort and safety of a good job at a major company to try her hand at entrepreneurship. So she left NM to become the chief marketing officer at Change Foods, a company started by Australian plant-based entrepreneur David Buka that's using microbes to brew real dairy proteins without the use of a single cow. So far, they've raised nearly a million dollars and are seeking an additional five million in 2021. Change Foods has already brought on other heavy hitters from major food brands, and their first product they claim will be a cheese that melts and performs just like conventional cheese. In this episode, we discuss Irina's journey from corporate Goliath to startup David, just what makes Change Foods different from other precision fermentation startups, and what Irina thinks are some examples of great and, frankly, not so great marketing in the plant-based space. We also get into why plant-based milk has become so much more successful than plant-based meat, or at least so far, and that vexing question, is real dairy brewed from microbes vegan or not? After all, it's real dairy protein. So if you're allergic to cow's milk, you'll be allergic to this. But no animals were used. So how should marketers describe this kind of food? I had a great time talking with Irina, and I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing her thoughts too. And no matter what, after listening to her, you'll likely start looking at LinkedIn a little more too. Irina, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. It is great to talk with you. You know, you have led a life, Irina, that is way more interesting than what most people will read because you have led a life that is at least seeming to me from the outside to be full of contrast, right? Like you start out growing up in the Soviet Union in a communist country, and then somehow you wind up at Harvard Business School working and then later working at big companies like Procter & Gamble. Uh, <laughs> yeah. now, now, you know, you're going from a major dairy company to a relatively tiny pre-revenue alternative dairy startup. So why do you have this life of contrast? I do. I do. You know, I think part of it is that I view life as an adventure. And, and for me, you know, a lot of the times, especially, you know, in job interviews, people ask you, what's your 10-year plan? And my view has always been, I don't have one, nor do I want to have one. because to me, that's boring. Um, I think life takes you places that you couldn't have imagined. And, you know, my life certainly is an example of that. And imagine if I'd plotted my whole life when I, you know, back, back in high school, when I still was in Russia, uh, it would have been a, a very, you know, different story from what I've lived now. And I think my willingness to consider the possibilities and just having the guts to take a jump sometimes into the unknown, I think has led me to amazing adventures. Well, what did lead you to take that jump? So, you know, most of your high school classmates growing up in a communist country probably never dreamt of, you know, coming to the U.S. to go to business school. So why did you do right. it? Well, so right out of high school, I, you know, I, as you said, I, I grew up in this um, science town, actually, in about two hours north of Moscow. 
And most of my classmates were applying to colleges and universities in Moscow, and, and so was I. But the conversation, um, my mother had this conversation with a friend of hers and um, found out about this series of uh, schools called United World Colleges. There's probably a 10, 10 to 12 of them in the world. They're spread out globally. And the idea of them is, is they collect um, you know, kids from essentially all over the world, all these different countries, and put them inside of these United World Colleges where you do an international baccalaureate degree, but you also kind of have a big community service program. And the bigger focus is bringing this international education awareness and experience to all these, uh, you know, teenagers essentially from, from all over the world. And then they go on to different paths in life and carry with them those experiences. And so when I heard about that, um, I just had to apply. I thought, oh my God, what a possibility to open up your horizons and to discover cultures and, you know, people from, from all over the world. So, you know, when I went there, I, I had four roommates and it was me, there was a girl from Japan, a girl from Sweden and a girl from South Africa, um, sharing a room. And you can imagine the amount of just cultural experience that that brought and how it broadened my horizons and honestly just blew my whole world open to the possibility. So that kind of got my bug going. Um, so I spent two years in Wales and then from there, Again, it just changes your perspective of what's possible. Um, and so then I, I, I looked at colleges and universities kind of globally and, and landed um, in the U.S. at McAllister College, which is a small liberal arts school in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. So I've kind of hit cold places. Um, and then from there, you know, just the story kind of went on. I, I worked at a consulting company, uh, Deloitte Consulting, Global, global Consultancy, uh, had a very classic management consulting training, traveled around the United States, got to see lots of different companies from very kind of high level strategic view. Um, and then that led me to want to continue on the general management career path. And that's what led me to Harvard Business School. Um, and again, it's to me, it's all about open-mindedness and, and being willing to step out of your comfort zone and just to see what's out there. So speaking of stepping out of your comfort zone, Irina, I want to ask you about your time working at Danone. Obviously, this is one of the biggest dairy companies, but you were managing brands for them that were plant-based like Silk yes. and White Wave. And first of all, let me just offer you my personal thanks since I have done more than my fair share to keep Silk in business under, oh, num fantastic. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> under numerous ownership, actually, because I've been drinking uh -huh. Silk for, for decades. I remember back in the 90s when I first saw the first silk truck, like a truck that uh -huh, has the, uh, uh -huh. the, the ads on the side of it. And I know it wasn't owned by Danone back then, but um, it was a, you know, to me, it was remarkable to see that there would be a an, a, an actual plant-based milk truck going around. That was truly, really amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, go on, I'm sorry. No, I'm saying it, it was actually started by Steve Demos out of Boulder, Colorado. I had the pleasure of meeting him about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And uh, I, what a hoot. I mean, the guy is a legend. And it's so amazing to meet the founder of this now, you know, nearly billion dollar brand. Yeah. Um, and it just happened in, you know, one person's lifetime, which is fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I still drink it on a near daily basis and my smoothies, so I am doing uh, my fair share to. to <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I do want to ask you about just what it was like working at a dairy company, working on a plant-based brand, because as you can imagine, like if you think about Netflix as an example, when Netflix came out, it was just male DVDs, right? Mm -hmm. And then when streaming started becoming more and more possible, they knew that streaming was going to completely cannibalize their business and really end their core business model of male DVDs. And they moved all to streaming. Was that the view within Danone? Did they think, well, this might cannibalize our dairy sales, but we should do it anyway in the way that Netflix embraced streaming over mail-in DVDs? Or is it just viewed as something that is supplemental and not really cannibalizing its core business? I, I think it's it's the it's the former, um, and the reason for that is if you look at plant based milk sales, right? Plant based milk has been around a while. You know, Silk is one of the pioneers, obviously, of that movement. And I would say my opinion is before my time is that a lot of the dairy companies, when when alternative milks first came around, were kind of ignoring the trend, right? They're kind of looking at it, thinking it's it's fringe, it's this thing for you know vegans and Boulder, and it will never be as big. And by the time it became big, 
I think you would see, right, that Silk was purchased by Dean Foods, which is a, a big dairy company, later spun off and then, you know, later purchased by Danone. But I'd say that that's been not an uncommon trend, right? Almond Breeze um, is also owned by a big a dairy company as well, where they've jumped in on the on board of the train, but perhaps a little later than than they should have, right? And you see the similar trend evolving with alternative meats right now, where you know, a couple of years ago, it wasn't really as big of a thing. And now just about every major CPG and every major meat producer had jumped on board with meat alternatives, because I think they have seen what happened with, with dairy companies where they were, you know, perhaps a little too late to the game. And Danone did buy White Wave Foods, which owned Silk and So Delicious at the time in 2017 for a very healthy uh, market premium. Um, and they did that in order to get into the plant-based game because they were seeing the, you know, a tremendous growth and growth potential, both in obviously North American market, but also in Europe where um, Alpro and Provomil are the two kind of sister brands that, that came along with, with White Wave acquisition. So it was most certainly a conscious move uh, by Danone to get into the plant-based game because it is very much a growth driver for the company right now. Um, and, and again, you see a lot of other big CPGs getting into plan-based space. Mm-hmm. You know, Irina, if you look at many of the categories that you're talking about, right? So take plant-based meat as an example. Um, it's certainly grown a lot in popularity, but it's still far less than 1% of the volume of meat that is sold yes. within the United States and elsewhere. And, and the same is uh, is true for, you know, all different, whether it's seafood or uh, nearly every category of animal products with the exception of plant-based milk, which is, you know, taken over a commanding 13% of the fluid milk market, at least in the United States. Why? Why right. do you think why do you think that this is the one standout that has really taken over a dramatic share of the mm-hmm. market for this particular category? Well, you know, number one reason why people are in the category or number one barrier as well is taste. And I do think that plant-based milk has come quite a long way, right? It's still not a perfect dairy analog, but the taste is quite great. And there's so many options, right? You can get soy milk, you can get almond milk, you can get cashew milk, anything that that could have been milked, I think it has been, has been milked at this point. Um, and, and you get these... Except for microbes, which we'll talk about shortly. <laughs> right. We will get there. Um, but, you know, but the taste is, is pretty great, right? And if you drink it out of a glass or you put it on a cereal or put it in your smoothie, the performance is also very good, meaning it hits kind of these key attributes, product performance attributes that consumers are looking for. Plant-based meat is is different in that, yes, you had your, you know, bean burgers or maybe your corn um, options, but they were never quite that close, right? It, it didn't taste the same. It didn't have the same texture. If you opted for a bean burger, it was a very different consumer experience. And I do think that that's what was holding the plant-based meat back to, and it was kind of more in that niche, kind of a vegan, you know, every now and again occasion. What really blew the doors open was the, you know, beyond and impossible, right? Where they really created a massive step change uh, to product performance and product attributes. And I think that's just the beginning, right? It, it created this tremendous growth. And I expect to see so much more. Um, so growth what, come. why, I mean, if, if, let me ask you, how much of it is taste, which clearly I agree with everything that mm-hmm. you just said. Um, but, you know, there were other factors like, you know, when Beyond got into the meat aisle so that meat consumers actually would see it as opposed to, you know, having to go to some special aisle. It seemed to me like when uh, Silk, what Silk did was to help bring plant-based milk into the dairy aisle. It wasn't just like this shelf-stable carton that you got in some interior aisle of the supermarket, but rather it went directly to where milk consumers were. And it Mm -hmm. seems to me that it started competing on cost as well, unlike Beyond and Impossible, which are great on taste and they're now conveniently located, but they're still selling it and multiples over what the cost of commodity meat is. Is that your, your, um, your experience too? It's, it's a multitude, right? So it's it's all of those things that you're saying, right? It's taste, it's availability, so it's placement, but also can I even buy it, right? Like um, 
few years ago, there was no option for you to go get Impossible or Beyond anywhere, really. So it's taste, it's placement, it's price. You don't have to necessarily be price parity, but it's within, you know, a certain price premium, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and the sensitivities kind of go down. If you look at plant-based milk, it started maybe two three X the dairy milk equivalent. Now it's come down significantly. I expect, and we've already seen even beyond had launched their, you know, next generation that is now getting closer and closer and closer to price parity. So it's, it's taste, it's placement, it's performance, it's pricing. It's all of those things. And I would Mm -hmm. layer on the fifth one is growing awareness of um, sustainability Mm -hmm. and, and climate change and the role that food plays in climate. I think with COVID, especially this year, it's catapulted so many people's awareness um, into what food does, how it plays a role, and how can an individual make a significant impact by what they eat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's just such a new um, level of awareness that you're seeing happening at the same time in multiple markets. It's happening in North America. It's most certainly happening in Europe and it's now happening in Asia uh, Pacific as well, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Increasingly people are, I I think, very aware of and concerned about the uh, footprint or maybe the food print of what they're Mm -hmm. eating. Um, In my own experience, though, I I have, I, I still do think that the other factors that you named come first, that if you're not competitive on taste, that everything else doesn't really matter. Exactly. I 100% agree. That's why, you know, vegans, you know, vegans have been around for a very long time and people come into a plant-based space from different angles, right? It was, you know, animal welfare, there's the health angle, there's a sustainability angle, and then there's price and availability. And all of them matter to different degrees to different people. There's not one you know, kind of one reason where everybody's coming in from the same perspective. But I do think both health and sustainability are now starting to reach mass awareness, which which is a fascinating development and it's happening rather quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I'll tell you from my own experience, I became vegan in 1993 and the only soy milk I could find back then was the shelf-stable Eden soy um, that had two ingredients, uh, water and soybeans. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, I remember telling my mom when I first tried it that I think I would rather put orange juice on my cereal than put that on there. <laughs> and, and, and amusingly, that product still exists. And I actually drink it occasionally now um, because, because it's basically water and soybeans. It, it has a lot of protein in it. Uh, so I do like it, but it, it's definitely a, health, a taste sacrifice. You know, it's nowhere near the, uh, the taste of, right. of, think, of products like silk, even unsweetened silk, actually. And that's, that's, to me, the difference, right, and the fundamentals of food marketing and, and what makes it unique from any other product, whether it's technology, clothing, cars, et cetera, is because food is so emotional, right? It's, it's wrapped in culture, in tradition, in nourishing, you know, feeding our families and connecting with our friends in personal just moments of pleasure where all these things come crashing, so to speak, onto your plate every time you eat. So it's it's really hard for people to approach food rationally. So mm-hmm. when you talk to them about health, right? I mean, gosh, if we were all rational human beings and we listened to doctors, we would all be eating, you know, whole food, plant-based diet and, and eating our veggies. But that's not how humans behave, right? Or if we all read, you know, United States, you know, United Nations sustainability reports, we would all make such massive changes in our food. And yet we don't. And it is because all these other factors oftentimes come ahead of the rational selves, right? Like our rational knowledge. And and to me, that's what makes food marketing both fascinating, but also incredibly powerful. Because when you do put these pieces in the right way, people will make um, incredible choices and they will make big changes if you can do it right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, humans are great at many things. Acting rationally is not one not of them. One. No. And, <laughs> um, but all the more reason why we have to align what is in our self-interest with uh, what is also in the world's interest. And that's why making yeah. these more sustainable foods and more ethical foods um, taste better and competing on on price and convenience and other things. But that needs a good story. You have to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who has uh, an enormity of marketing experience and expertise in storytelling, 
And obviously, I presume you've been following the alternative protein world even from Danone for some time. So are there yes. any examples of companies that you thought were telling a particularly good story and marketing their products? Well, I, I would say there's a couple of companies that, you know, that I admire a great deal and I'm, I'm sure you do as well. You know, Impossible, uh, famous story, right? But they have done so much for the bigger alternative food space, like plant-based food space, because of the way they went to market, because A, they had the right, you know, product with performance that really was a step change to what existed before. The fact that they went after, and, and again, I'm talking when they reached kind of a mass awareness, right? I know they've been around a while, but when they went after that Burger King burger, right? And they went right at the heart of what does the burger mean to consumers, right? That moment of enjoyment, that connection, that culture, you know, all those things wrapped in it. I thought that was so brilliant where they didn't come at it from the technical perspective and try to explaining, you know, what is the exact point of difference in, in technical specs of their burger versus somebody else's. And they went after the experience. And I thought that that was such a brilliant move. Um, I know we in the food space tend to geek out on the tech um, but from a consumer perspective, I, I, I guarantee you, even now you go and you ask a hundred people in, you know, at Burger King or at, at the grocery store, they would not articulate to you why they're buying the product. They will just say, Hey, it, it tastes great. And I love the experience. And, and, and I just relate to, to this product. Mm. Um, and I think that's what they've really captured incredibly well. And, and I wish more brands would, would take a page from that, um, and really think about what is the experience that I'm creating with my product, not just what are the specs, you know, the grams of protein and the fat and the sugar and whatever. Um, the other one I tell you um, that I admire a great deal is Miyoko's um, for a different reason. Um, that one has this tremendous brand storytelling that I love so much, right? From, from their founder um, and kind of her mission and her passion to um, really build a kinder world, right? And building kinder food system with amazing products, right? And so it's a combination of, yes, having a product that performs really well and tastes good and it is, you know, available to people, but also what the brand stands for. And I think that is when you look at the younger generation of, of consumers today, that is what they expect. They don't just want to get, you know, a good product at the right price, kind of more, more of what our parents' generation would have expected. They want to know the company. They want to know the founders. They want to know what does this company do in addition to making product? And, and they want to support that business. So I think Miyoko's has done, you know, a tremendous job in bringing that to life and creating such a fan base mm. with a product. Interesting. Yeah. Well, those are uh, both two great companies, of course. And um, mm. that's nice that those are two ones that you think are doing a good job uh, at the risk of uh, offending diplomacy. Are there any that you thought were doing a, <laughs> a, a let's just say a suboptimal job? <laughs> you know, I've, I've recently did critique um, one of the companies. It was um, Late Life Burgers. Mm. They, uh, posted an op-ed and I forget in which paper, but in yeah. one of the papers where it was in a couple of papers, actually. In a couple of papers, yeah. They posted an op-ed basically saying, look, plant-based meats, um, your ingredient labels are not very clean. And you know, we're making a stand and we're ours is is a better, cleaner, purer ingredient statement. And I just felt um that it was so wrong for a couple of reasons. Um one is we're all really on a shared mission. I think all the plant-based companies, and, and by plant-based, I'm kind of wrapping everybody, cell-based, fermentation-based, pure vegans, everybody, impossible. We're all on a mission to feed the world in a more sustainable way, right? It, we have more people, we have a climate crisis, and we need to give people options. And there are so many consumers that are coming at it from different angles. For some, a, you know, pure play, organic bean burger is the thing. And for others, it's impossible, right? And for some, and not everybody cares about, you know, whether it's specific ingredients or whether it's vegan or whatever, right? There's room to play. And I feel like this kind of a vegan on vegan crime has been taking place um, occasionally where you see brands or people within the industry critiquing each other. And throwing rocks in your neighbor's yard, so to speak. 
And I just feel like that's, we need to focus on the bigger issue, right? We need to help each other and lift each other up because we have such a job to do. And it's such a big tent that we can have many players building thriving businesses and we want them to, um, to where we don't need to, to win at the expense of each other. We should be winning at the expense of, you know, industrial animal agriculture. Um, it, it certainly created uh, an enormity of ill will toward them within the alternative it, protein space. And I guess t- I guess time will tell whether it also creates good or ill will or no will whatsoever among actual consumers. So, you know, t- time will tell. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, Irina, I appreciate your insights there. Uh, Obviously, you must have been taken, though, by the story of Change Foods uh, because you decided to leave a presumably a secure and comfortable career at a large Goliath of a food company to join this little David of a pre-revenue startup. (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) So what's the story behind that? Like, how did it come to be that you made this uh, switch after meeting uh, David, the CEO? He's an aerospace engineer. You guys meet up. What happens? (laughs) Right? Uh, Well, so the story has a long beginning, right? There's, There's a long tail to it. You know, I personally have been on a, on a journey of discovery, uh, both, you know, plant-based food kind of started for me about 10 years ago when I watched, you know, Forks Over Knives, right? Like that's, that's the movie that, that catapulted so many people into this learning about health, nutrition, you know, what does food do to our bodies? And in parallel with that, you know, I was also learning about, you know, climate change and all the sustainability issues that we're tackling today. And, you know, as you learn and you know more, the more you start to connect the dots. So I've been on this journey for some time. And even as you mentioned, as I was working, I started with White Wave Foods, was acquired by Danone. I firmly planted my feet already professionally in a plant-based space. In fact, you know, even working at Danone, I, you know, essentially refused to rotate into a dairy business. I said, hey, I'll, I'll, I, I feel very strongly and very passionately that I want to spend my time and talent and energy in what I believe in, right? So I already kind of had that and um, wanted to reinforce that even more. And I would say David was on a similar journey, also dating a year, some years back where he left aerospace and joined the Food Frontier, which is a think tank type of an organization in, uh, in Australia, um, as well as he was um, involved with Hungry Planet a plant-based a brand as well to bringing that into the Asia Pacific region as well. So he was on a similar journey. And I think both of us were kind of in our own ways, learning and understanding, Hey, where is this going? Right. How can we push on the gas even more? What's the next breakthrough in, in food? And I think, you know, he, he obviously came to the precision fermentation space through everything that he's learned. And, and he, he found a co-founder, um, in Australia as well, Junior Teo, who's a, a associate professor in um, at QUT, where they've paired up to bring this tech to market. And then, you know, LinkedIn has been a fantastic resource during the pandemic, where I feel like it just took a very different shape. It transformed itself from kind of a resume gathering um, job board to a truly a professional communication platform. Um, and so I was very active on LinkedIn and, you know, meeting amazing people and really finding folks that, you know, connected with my mission. And we were on a shared mission to, to really change the world. And now it's easier than ever, right. To, to dial someone up and and connect with them and have a chat. And it's, it's a global community that's truly remarkable. And so David and I met, uh, you know, through LinkedIn and we were so value aligned. We were so aligned on the mission and, you know, David was already kind of thinking about how do you build a food company first that is supported by technology rather than a technology company that maybe happens to launch food at some point. Mm -hmm. And so he was on the hunt for, um, you know, a founding team who would really bring different skills to the table. So, you know, I came in as a CMO and I bring this, you know, food marketing background kind of deep into plan-based space and understanding um, how to create products that resonate with consumers, you know, who are in this plan-based sphere, right? Um, And then we also have a COO who's coming on board um, and he brings a lot of food manufacturing 
background. He he's a former VP of manufacturing at Just and had worked at Amy's um, prior. And so we've really cobbled this team together that has this multitude of skills that are complementary, but we all share, you know, a mission and a vision and and this passion for for making a real difference in the world. And I think that's kind of the what what really made us come together very quickly. And, and it's, it's almost like we've worked together for so long. Because <laughs> we have such a shared understanding and, and language and passion yeah. for what we're after. Well, that story is certainly a great endorsement for using LinkedIn. Uh, my wife and I actually, were just, <laughs> she was just asking me, she saw me on LinkedIn. She's like, who uses LinkedIn? I said, actually, a lot of people Everybody, use LinkedIn. Everybody, right? right. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, that's uh, quite an endorsement for using it uh, for sure. But Irina, you talked a little bit about terms like precision fermentation, and we have had on the co-founders of Perfect Day on before, but in case people either don't remember that episode or maybe didn't listen to it, just tell Mm -hmm. people, what is precision fermentation? Like, what is Change Foods actually doing here? Right. So precision fermentation is uh, what was now dubbed the third pillar of alternative protein space. So, you know, the first pillar is a classic plant-based, right? Soy milk, soy burgers, bean burgers, et cetera. Then you have your cell-based or cultured meat pillar. And then precision fermentation or fermentation pillar is the third one. And it's the newest, most nascent pillar of the space and most exciting to me because the promise is instead of growing, whether it's animals to produce certain proteins or creating products that resemble their analogs through plant-based, now you actually have the ability to instruct microorganisms to produce the compounds that you want to create products that are bioidentical to their traditionally farmed animal products. So when you look at the biggest gaps, right, from traditional plant-based space with product performance, with taste, texture, et cetera, now you have technology that can allow you to close those gaps. And if you look at consumers and the the vast kind of one-third of population who are flexitarians who are kind of dabbling in and out of, of this plant-based space, once you close that performance gap, you have the potential to bring all these people plus more on board to this movement. And so to me, the, the precision fermentation space is what allows us to produce, you know, in our case, we're focused on dairy, proteins, and fats um, to create the beloved dairy products. In our case, we're starting with cheese um, to give people the cheese they love, right? Because if, if you're vegan today, cheese falls short. Um, and when I saw that we could create, you know, cheese that performs, tastes, smells, you know, chews and stretches like, like the dairy cheese that you know, without using cows and the impact on the environment, I just couldn't stay away. You know, it's, uh-huh. it, it was so exciting. I, I, I just leaped with, you know, both feet in and you're right. I left my, um, quite lovely career behind to do this. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because fluid cow's milk sales have been falling and yes. falling and falling and plant-based milk has been taking over a lot of that, but it's also been falling as people are, you know, drinking more water and other things like that too. But, uh, you know, part of it is plant-based milk is actually taking over a larger and larger portion of it. Whereas cheese sales has actually, have actually been increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, plant-based cheese has not really taken almost any substantive market share away from cow-based cheese. Cow-based cheese, in fact, is increasing in its consumption mm-hmm. and it takes way more milk to make cheese. In fact, you know, to make a pound of cheese. Yeah, you make one pound of cheese, you need 10 pounds of milk. So even though uh, cow's fluid milk is falling in demand, the number of dairy cows, which is really from a sustainability perspective, what you really are concerned about, hasn't really fallen. Um, And and that's because cheese demand is just going up and up and up. And it takes so much more milk to make cheese than it does to make milk. So having some type of a really great cost competitive, taste competitive uh, cheese that doesn't involve actual whole organisms that we call cows is a uh, great alternative here. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the ways that I describe it for people who have a hard time understanding how microbes could do this is that you know if you think about taking brewer's yeast, 
and you feed it mm -hmm. sugar, it produces alcohol. If you think about baker's yeast, you feed it sugar, it produces CO2, which leavens your bread. In this case, a company like Change Foods is taking a special type of yeast and feeding it sugar and is getting cow's proteins like casein. Yeah, right. Um, and so you're producing real casein, not something that's similar or an alternative to casein, but real casein simply without the cows. And so let me ask you then, Irina, because obviously Perfect Day has been around for about uh, six years or so. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. They now have their whey protein ice cream on mm -hmm. the market. That is real whey protein made from microbes rather than from cows. What is it that you're doing differently from them? Like what's your, uh, what's your claim to fame that, is, that separates you out from a company like Perfect Day? Right. Well, I mean, obviously they have quite a bit of years ahead, right? They, they were one of the first and, and focused on kind of building out the tech. And I have tremendous respect for them. I, you know, actually connected with, with Ryan, one of the co-founders a few days ago, and, and we're chatting about, um, you know, building a coalition together to collaborate in this space. Um, what I think makes change foods specifically different is Unlike many of the food tech startups that that lead with technology, right? You talk to the co-founders; it's a lot of PhDs, a lot of labs. That you know, they're, they're focused on what is the tech, and then they build the tech, and then they look for product. We are almost doing it in the opposite direction, where we are food company, consumer-focused company first, backed by tech. What that does is it it really allows us to focus where, you know, we've identified, hey, cheese is the biggest opportunity for us, given the amount of, um, like you said, sustainability impact, as well as performance gaps, as well as just the love for cheese that people have, because cheese is what's holding so many people back from, from going fully plant-based. When you have such focus and such attention you can then direct your R&D efforts, right? And your product development efforts. And what we've done also is, you know, because I've come on board, because we have Luis, who are our COO, who's come on board with food manufacturing experience, we can stagger a lot of these processes in parallel, almost like Operation Warp Speed in a way, right? Where we're, <laughs> we're parallel pathing our go-to-market, our product development and formulation and our R&D work all at the same time to speed the time to market. So mm. what, you know, have taken perfect day, you know, six years to get to, to market, we're hoping to, to do that in, you know, less than a year and a half. Mm. So, so because what, what we're do doing it differently. Mm. What do you think is the best story then to tell Irina about these precision fermentation proteins? Do you describe them as real dairy? Do you describe them as vegan? Like what's the best, <laughs> what's the best way to explain it to a consumer? You know, that is literally when I came into this, into this space and I looked at it from, from a kind of the marketing, the consumer perspective. And I looked around and I'm like, oh my gosh, there is not a name um, that, that is used consistently or that works really well, which is fascinating, right? It, it goes to show that A, the industry is so new that there's not an aligned name convention, right? The FDA, that there's not a standard of identity that we've kind of settled on. Um, and there's not a consistent usage of the name within the industry, which is both a tremendous, you know, opportunity for us to shape it. And also just an, a, kind of one of those things where you come in and like, wow, how exciting is it mm -hmm. to be able to truly craft this entire pillar of alternative proteins from scratch. Mm -hmm. So what I've actually done in just the, the first few weeks since I've joined is, as I said, I'm, I'm kind of working on collaborating with a lot of, I've, I've talked to every startup in, in the space and the GFI, PBFA, New Harvest, you know, kind of the, the big organizations in the space um, to say, hey, let's come together and, and let's do this purposefully. The reason for that is if you look at what happened with, you know, cell meat or cultured meat is the, the cat kind of got out of the bag a little too soon, perhaps, right? Where people were working on the tech, a lot of the different terminology was used. And now it's, it's much harder to get to a common place. And I do think it's tremendously important because no one startup can, can move the needle quite as as, as much, right? It, we all have these limited budgets. We can't talk to consumers and we have so much consumer education work to do, right? You and I can geek out on precision fermentation, but for your average consumer, they have absolutely no idea what that is or what's even yeah. the possibility. And so for us to come together and shape this in, in terms that are clear, that are positive, that 
you know, communicate the space well is so important. And, and I've had such tremendous response from every company in the space to say, we absolutely want to work um, on this and, and shape this, right? Because precision fermentation is not necessarily a great consumer facing uh, <laughs> language, right? Or vegan debate, right? Like, it, Are these products vegan? Well, depends, right? If, if I look at it from an ethical kind of animal welfare perspective, which I think a lot of vegans come, come through, yes, because no animals are involved or harmed in the process. But if I put this product on shelf, what does my average consumer understand it to be is very different. Mm-hmm. And if I now have a dairy protein, which is an allergen, and I say it's vegan, and my average consumer has never seen a vegan product that is also a dairy allergen, how do I talk to them about that so I don't create a potential issue? Um, so I think we need to tackle all of that. And it's, you know, it's a lot of work, and, but we need to do it. But I also think we have people who are shared, you know, in our shared mission are very collaborative and actually very excited to to work on it together and get to language in terms that we all can get behind. Yeah. And I think that uh, is perhaps one reason why a pre-revenue startup that doesn't have plans to commercialize for another year or two could use a CMO. Um, you right. know, some, some people <laughs> may think, well, you're not selling anything. Why do you need a CMO? Well, this is something that, you know, really does uh, exemplify and illustrate the saying that you only get one chance to make a first impression. And as these uh, products come out onto the market, you don't, get that many chances to actually explain it to consumers what they are. But it it, it leads me, Irina, to ask this following question, because in dairy products today, we already have an example of widespread use of a precision fermentation product. Uh, um, Basically, you know, instead of using rennet from a calf's intestine for decades Mm -hmm. now, cheese has had a precision fermentation enzyme of chymosin that is put into cheese to make it, you know, melt basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, nobody thinks about it. Nobody talks about it, even though that's pretty much exactly what you're doing, except it's producing this enzyme rather than what you're doing is producing proteins and fats. So why why is it that we had that type of an introduction that uh, of this pretty revolutionary product of removing the calf intestinal rennet in exchange for a precision fermentation type rennet that is now widespread, it's obviously cost-effective and nobody even knows about it, let alone talks about it. Right, right. Well, because I think, and, and you know, another example is insulin, right? Like and it, it, this technology has been used in, in pharma and other industries, and you're absolutely right. It's been used kind of quietly. Um, what I think is different is that there's this amazing opportunity to introduce these products to consumers and tell the story of this new way of, of creating food, whether it's, you know, cultured meat or precision fermentation derived um, proteins where it actually matters, right? We've reached a point, as I mentioned to you with younger consumers, they want to have the product they know and love. I mean, every vegan would, would tell you what a struggle that is, or it was initially to give up cheese. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and but we want to be sustainable and, and we want to live a, you know, a lifestyle that aligns with our values. And to be able to tell that story to folks, I think would create tremendous tailwind for, yeah. for the industry. And as you talk about cost competitiveness, let's be honest, we're not going to be parity with dairy proteins, especially today where there's tremendous amount of government subsidies going on, where they're not paying for you know, negative externalities like pollution, et cetera. It's going to take some time. I have faith that we will get there, right? Not to distant future, but it's going to take some time. So be able, being able to command a price premium for these products in the interim while you're building scale is important. And the yeah. way you build that price premium is by telling the story. Because if I if I just quietly substitute, let's say it's casein, right, in 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 a regular cheese. And I don't have the ability to tell the story. I really don't have the ability to price it 
<laughs> higher, right? Like, why would I buy craft slices versus craft slices right. if, but, if one is three yeah. X or two X? Yeah. So why is? I mean, do you know anything about the economics of rennet then, as to why it must be that rennet is just a really expensive ingredient if if using you know microbial know. fermentation could outcompete it on cost, which is I presumably what presumably I, what happened, I guess. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, to, yeah. to be honest with you, I don't know. Right. Yeah. What I do know is I, I believe you had to kill the calf in order to get oh, yeah. the rennet. So. It sounds really incredibly cruel and probably inefficient, right? Depending yeah, yeah. given how much how much cheese we make. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll look into this and put something in the show notes if I see anything. Mm-hmm. But one theory that is coming to my mind right now, which is not based on any evidence, but only on my presumption, is that as demand for veal declined from the 1970s through the 1990s, that the number of available calves for slaughter must have gone way down. Because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, veal consumption plummeted during that time, largely for animal welfare concerns. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, it, maybe it was just that there weren't enough calf intestines around. You know, that's a, you know, one, yeah. one option. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll look into this and, and find out why. It, but it's fascinating. It's, You're right. I think that would be great. Obviously it's, it's been around for, for time, right? And now it's, it's done at such massive scale where I'm sure now it's, it's incredibly price competitive or yeah. advantageous. Yeah. Well, um, you know, and we'll get there, right? I, I fully believe that both, you know, cell-based and fermentation-based sectors will get there with time. Mm-hmm. But there is this period of of ramp up of production of you know scale technologies of all the supporting ecosystems that need to come online. Like fermentation capacity is a bottleneck, right? That needs to come online. And while we're doing this, in order to give us the space we need to to put these products out to market, I think going with a branded product with a story that can educate consumers and bring them on on board is is mo- very important. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we'll look into this and, and figure that out. There, there is a, a comparable analogy, and I, I wrote about this in the book Clean Meat, which is that in uh, during World War One, uh, the Germans had these zeppelins that they were, you know, raining down terror on British cities with. And in order to keep them afloat, uh, they needed, you know, they were keeping them afloat with very lightweight gases and they needed something to hold all the gases that was also lightweight. And so they were using uh, intestinal lining. Mm-hmm. And the Germans during World War One actually banned sausage making because you needed those intestines for the sausages and they wanted them for the Zeppelins. Mm. And so um, it wasn't though until... Um, I think it was Goodyear, actually, that came out with a super thin material that could be used to keep those type of uh, blimps afloat that uh, ended up reducing the need for, for uh, intestines and zeppelins. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, you know, another example of a plant-based or a non-animal alternative uh, rendering another animal usage obsolete. Right. Uh, <laughs> so speaking of rendering animal usage obsolete, Irina, um, you know, you have talked about the, the Rethink X report that has uh, been widely touted among believers mm-hmm. in the alternative protein space and who have said that, you know, they think that industrial animal ag is going to collapse by the year 2030. However, right. uh, you know, others have pointed out that animal agriculture is still expanding today, you know, as we are in 2021 and increase for, the meat, for meat is going up, not down. Yeah. Yep. The number of animals raised for food continues going up not down. So do you think that it is really possible that that system will collapse within a decade? Or do you think that's more like aspirational thinking for them? Well, I do. And here's why. Um, I think we have reached a point, kind of almost like a tipping point in consumer awareness, right? We've talked about that with with COVID, with health, et cetera, where more and more younger consumers are, are starting to ask these questions. We have reached a technological point. The latest number I've seen is there's 83 cell-based meat companies operating today, which is mind-boggling from just a few years ago. We have now reached a point where multinational food companies, you know, including the largest meat producer in the world, JBS, is now investing pretty strongly into the alternative space. We have reached the point where there's now money the VC money, institutional money that is flowing into the space. We have reached the point where talent um, is flowing into the space. You know, people like myself who are saying, look, I have skills and talent and I will deploy them to move this industry forward. And I'm willing to go above and beyond my scope of duty to help, you know, other startups or, you know, other companies. And I want to do that. When you see so many massive changes 
happening all at the same time across the world. Like you see governments are now waking up to, um, you know, like a Singapore government saying, look, we need food independence. We want to, pro- you know, promote this, this technology. You see Chinese government declaring that they want to have, you know, majority of the protein needs met with plant-based sources for their population. All of these processes at the same time create tremendous momentum. And it's almost like none at all. And then all of a sudden, it kind of the dynamic, right? You, where there's little, little bits and pieces and you're hearing things and all of a sudden it's a sea change. And I think we're about to, to experience that sea change in the next 10 years because of all of this. And, and when you look at meat and dairy industry, it is highly scaled absolutely optimized to the nth degree and it is unprofitable right like if you take the government subsidies out of the system majority of the farmers would go bankrupt right the inputs into the system if you look at those farm operations etc they are not massive money-making enterprises so when you start taking scale away right as even a little bit of, of demand shifts and you start taking potentially some of the government action and support away and potentially introducing new sustainability taxes, right, or or other measures to help shift the food system, these pressures could create tremendous shifts within those systems to to disrupt them in, in in a meaningful way. And I think that's what the Rethink X report lays out. And I agree with you, it's it's very bold thinking. But I also believe that these systems do not operate on a linear fashion, meaning you can't just say, look, we are at 7 billion people today, we're going to 10, therefore we draw a straight line from here till tomorrow. When you have so many changes happening, that could lead to these inflections. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's, it's adding up the inflections, I think, is what the Rethink X report does in a, in a very interesting way that leads to a dramatically different future. Is it 10 years? Is it 15? I don't know. Um, I think a lot of it will depend on the pace of these changes and, and politics in, in some areas of the world. But I do think that it's undeniable. And to me, then, it's not a, a matter of, of when or how. It's a matter of when, um, which is it's, it's such a fascinating change of perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess this would explain, Irina, why you refer to yourself as a stubborn climate optimist, because that is definitely <laughs> optimistic thinking. <laughs> I do. I do. And you know what? Like, um, And I don't know who said that, but I just so very much live by the philosophy of the best way to predict the future is to create it. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. think it is, it is so true, right? If, if you can get enough people pushing in the same direction and, and believing in a certain version of the future... I just think there's it, it, it becomes inevitable. Yeah. Um, well, Irina, for those who want to help create that type of a future, uh, for a future where we are no longer reliant on the exploitation of animals for our food system, a future where we don't have runaway greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, a future where people are leading healthier lives. Are there any particular resources that you and in, in your experience have uh, benefited from that you would recommend to others, whether they be books or speeches or anything else that you think those who want to create that type of a better future should consume? Mm-hmm. Well, so as I mentioned to you, I think LinkedIn has actually been tremendous um, resource in terms of connectivity. A, there's a ton of just information and news that comes out now because a lot of people have have really truly started sharing this great content. Um, so I think it's an education platform. It's also a connection platform. So for somebody who is interested in getting involved in this space, it's amazing how easy it is to figure out who are the key voices in this space and be able to connect with these people, right? You and I are talking for exactly this reason. Um, and so I think, A, getting involved in leveraging LinkedIn in an active way is an amazing resource. Like if, if you're an MBA student or you're just somebody who's working in a corporate job and you're saying, look, I, I just need to make a change, right? I can no longer just work for a paycheck. I want to work for um, a, a bigger purpose. You can now do that. Right. And, and the talent game has gone global with the pandemic, which is kind of one of those silver linings, right? Where you now, like I've connected with David from Australia, right? I still have not met him in person. I've only seen him in 2D. Um, 
but it's amazing, right? You can now start working with people and creating teams and having conversations and learning so much about the space and figuring out how do you apply your skills and talents and time to make a big difference. I think you can do that using LinkedIn. So that's one, one resource that I'm just a big fan of today. The other one is, and I just read this book literally on, on vacation, um, The Tipping Point by Michael uh, Gladwell. Mal- yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. Right? Sorry, Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. Um, he, he's famous enough that if you get his name wrong, he probably doesn't care. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but, I, but I read his book and, and in The Tipping Point, he talks about exactly this type of trend of inflection point and how do these inflection points get created. And there's kind of three different things he outlines. And I thought, oh my gosh, how, how relevant is that? One, you know, he talks about how do you create this, right? How do you reverse engineer an inflection point? Um, and, and he talks about, you know, how, how the law of the few, right? Where these big trends are started by the, the small fraction of very passionate people, you know, in case of the pandemic, it's the super spreaders, which we're now very familiar with, you know, in, 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 in other spheres, it's the influencers, right? It's, it's those key voices. He talks about the stickiness factor, like how do you develop a message that is memorable and impactful, right? And gosh, do we have a message, right, to deliver? And, and how do you change context? Because humans are incredibly influenced by their context. So what does that mean is, is how do we create these communities, right? How do we engage the influencers to make this massive tipping point change, right? And when I, and I and literally, as I was reading this book, I thought, gosh, I wish everybody in the plant-based movement would read this with that lens in mind and think about how do we create this tipping point in the masses? Like, how do we take our passion and purpose and, and this, this food movement and flip it from, you know, the smaller uh, percentage of population to the masses? And I think we are at that point and leveraging lessons in that book to drive it. I think a great example I'm seeing now is the Veganuary movement, right? That that started in, in the UK as a small kind of vegan movement. And now you have celebrity endorsements, right? You have this great messaging behind it, reinforced by the pandemic and, you know, the, the, all, all the health and, and sustainability messages. And you have this context, right? Where all of a sudden it's groups of people coming together, finding a new community where everyone in this community is participating, right? In this kind of a new way of life, of living, a lifestyle where you feel connected. So again, you bring back that connection, the emotional connection of food to community, to other people in your life. And all of a sudden you have yourself a groundswell, right? And, and I just thought, what a great, you know, I know this book has been around for some time, but I just, I, re, I reread it with this new perspective and I thought it was fantastic. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. He he actually uh, pre pandemic uh, he he passed me in an airport and I was I was sadly I was on the phone. I really wanted to go up and talk to him, but I was I could not get off of this call. But he oh walked right God. by me. He was by himself, and I was like, ah oh, man, that was my chance to talk with Malcolm Gladwell. But um, probably to his uh, benefit, I, I could not get off of this <laughs> phone call. <laughs> uh, all right, Irene. A final question for you here. So you now are uh, doing Chance Foods. You're going to try to commercialize some fermented dairy proteins that are cow free, mm-hmm. but what are other ideas that maybe somebody who wants to create the type of future that you were talking about should pursue? If somebody's uh-huh. thinking, wow, that's really cool. I really admire what Irina is doing. What do you think that they might consider doing? Are there any white spaces or other areas where you hope that somebody else will either join or start a company doing X? Right. Um, I do. You know, if I wasn't doing this, I would be looking at um, away from home eating experiences. What I mean is if, if you are you know, trying to be healthy, right? If you're, if you're trying to follow whole food, plant-based diet or vegan diet today. And when people ask me like, how do you do this? I'm like, you basically have to cook all the time, right? Because there's just not a lot of options. And it's, it, it's such a barrier for so many people, especially, you know, when you look at European, North American markets where, you know, we're busy, we have jobs, we have this and that, and, and we just, we don't want to cook. It's not part of our culture anymore. And when you eat so much in this away from home context, right, especially quick service restaurants, there is such a void in, in healthy plant-based food. There's only a handful of restaurants that I can, you know, True Food Kitchen and Flower Child and maybe like a handful of others that, that do food right. Like the do food the way I would do it if I were cooking, right? Where they cook from scratch, they use lots of vegetables and actually create 
delicious food that's that's priced reasonably. Um, what a void today where you can't get this. And so I feel like if, if I were looking for an opportunity, what I would love that. Um, and the other one is schools. You know, we talk a lot about how this kind of education around school, you know, starts at school, right? Around nutrition and what you eat, and how it affects your body. And then you look at what our school meals are. It's a far, far cry from what I would like, you know, for my kids to eat. That's a puzzler, um, right? Because you need to, to have it be accessible and you need to bring kids food that they will actually eat, right? And, and shift those habits over time. And it needs to be affordable, but it also needs to be healthy. And I think when I, you know, I'm a parent and when I look at the next generation, again, what a void um, we have there to, to feed our kids better meals and give parents options, right? Like I would pay money, <laughs> you know, good mm-hmm. money for my kids to eat, you know, whole food, plant-based diet at school. Yeah. Um, oh, well, so school, I think yes. there's another, there's another gap there too. For sure. Well, yeah, school food is uh, among the most inexpensive uh, foods out there. So it's very difficult to compete on cost, but um, it it can be done. And hopefully somebody will be inspired by you, Irina, Mm -hmm. to do it. And I hope that, you know, even though you and David have never met in person, you and I have also never met in person, but I hope (laughs) that when we do meet in person, that we're going to get to go to the type of restaurant that you have fantasized about here and that there'll be some listener who is inspired by your suggestion and they're going to start that restaurant. You and I will get to dine there uh, sometime. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I appreciate appreciate everything, Irina, that you have done to advance the plant-based space with these uh, legacy brands like Silk and So Delicious, which again, I am a huge fan and consumer of myself. And I can't wait to become a Change Foods consumer too when you all commercialize. And I'll be looking forward to that too. So thanks for everything that you've done and continue, continue to do to make a better food system. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to chat. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.